and perhaps even through the entirety of my message today, I will read more than I would normally, not necessarily scriptural text, but just even my notes. Now, that means as I do so that I have to use what I say, my infamous reading glasses. However, don't let that be a distraction to you today. I do not typically read this much, but sometimes you want to choose your words very carefully. And today is one of those days. So here in the book of Proverbs, let's just read and set a precedence. Proverbs 14 and 34, and it will be on the screen, and you can follow on the screen, and that will be much quicker. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Are y'all there? Now, if you're going to move within the text, you're going to move fast, but I'm telling you, you won't be able to speed past Angie up there on that screen. She'll be quick. Proverbs 11 and 11 says, By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. It seems as if Solomon, the writer of most of the Proverbs, has wisdom from God as it pertains to the good of a civil society. And that when the righteous are in place and exalted, it seems the city is blessed. But when the wicked find their seats, it seems like there's much groaning. It's recorded in actually another proverb. And now it's in Proverbs 22 and 28, he says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Isn't that a powerful word? God of Israel said, now this is his last words, and he's giving a, just an exhortation as he reflects upon his life. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. How many of you know it's very important that we in our constitutional republic, that we choose leaders that have morals and values, come on somebody, that are based upon a what we believe to be a scriptural precedence, come on. Let's go a little further. Now, Paul addresses this in a little different manner, but I think it has a proper application. It's Galatians 5 and 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. And I know this is written to the Christian church, but we could apply this to our nation as a whole. We have been called and given a gift called liberty. But we should not use that liberty for an occasion to the flesh which is what's taking place all across our culture and has been doing so long before this court ruling of two weeks ago, okay? So but do not use our liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, Peter also addresses this in a familiar dialogue. Now, this particular passage is actually in context to love the brotherhood, honor the king. It's kind of a, a civil or patriotic exhortation here, but I just extracted this one verse, as free, that's because we have freedoms given unto us by our forefathers who gained them from a revelation that God had given in his word into their hearts. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. You know, Paul was, was apt to use his Roman citizenship to extend the gospel. He would pull it out as a trump card if he needed to, to seize the moment to propagate the gospel. And you and I must use the liberties that we have because sometimes they may appear that they're slipping you know, away from us. So we must use them while they're in front of us as the servants of God. We're going to stop there and pray, but we're going to turn to another passage that they're going to unfold on the screen in front of you. But it is more of a dialogue, and it is more of a story that I just want to exhort from to set the context of where I'm going to be today. Now, I know that we are celebrating Independence Day as a nation as of yesterday. And that certainly Independence Day came as a result of the American Revolution into which the tyranny of Great Britain was broken off of the colonies. They shook off the shackles of slavery and tyranny and they became an independent and free nation. And we know it as the American Revolution. I believe that we need a new American Revolution in our culture today. We're going to pray and ask God to speak to us concerning it. Father, I love you. I'm humbled amongst our church family and pray that you will use me as a vessel. I've stated many times to this church family that, Father, I am limited in my vocabulary and limited in my education. 
But your power and your great wealth of wisdom and knowledge is not limited. And I pray today, as the Apostle Peter exhorted me, that I might speak as the oracles of God. Let there be no pride, arrogance, or envy inside of me, but only a humbled heart, God, who trembles at thy word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said, Amen. And you can be seated. I want to take you back in time for just a little while, just for a few minutes. We won't, you know, this, this particular passage demands much more time than I can allot for it right now. But it's a time in ancient Israel, unfortunately, it's a prelude to their destruction. Unfortunately, ancient Israel, both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, had apostated themselves, unfortunately, by giving prey and giving place to foreign religions and foreign idols, and therefore were soon to be subjected to the wrath of God, as prophesied by the prophets of old. Now, until that took place, there was an ebb and flow of ups and downs in the nation, and typically it would be responsive to the faith of a king. If the king was righteous and the king was zealous for God, then often his subjects, the people, his citizens, would follow his lead. If a king was idolatrous, then often the people followed that practice as well. Does that make sense? This story comes to us here with a king by the name of Josiah. He's just eight years of age when he's placed on the throne. How would you think about that? How old is Elijah? Nine. How would you think if you were calling him king, King Elijah? So eight years of age, Josiah is now king. But the Bible tells us, and we're going to be in 2 Kings and read quickly, but the Bible in this passage doesn't record this, but it does at a later time. It says that when he was 16 is when his heart began to really turn towards the Lord God his Father. How important does that say that ICM student ministries are? Come on, somebody. Amen. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. Now, remember, he's inheriting an apostate kingdom. And his mother's name was Jedidiah and the daughter of Adidiah of Boshkath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father. And he turned not aside to the right hand to the left. So even though his nation was apostate at this particular time, it seems as he was brought into the awareness of his spirit heritage. He began to seek the Lord God of his father David. So somebody somewhere along the line set this young man down and said despite the fact that there have been other um, you know other forefathers or fathers in your in your uh, history, your precedents before you, that, that have served idols, I want to take you to the faith of David. And when he heard about the faith of David, it stimulated his own faith and it moved him to become the man that he was. And so now by this time, here's a little exhortation. It's in the 18th year of King Josiah, whether that be 18th year of his reign, being 26 years of age or 18 years of age, that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalah, the son of Mishalom, the scribe, to the house of the Lord. Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which he brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. There's a measure of repair. We'll see this in the fifth verse that's going on because it seems that in the negligence of the nation as they're following other gods and apostatizing the true faith of Israel, they neglect the house of God. And in their negligence, Josiah now that he has a resurgence in his faith begins to order that the house be repaired. This was not the first time that that occurred, nor the last. And says, let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work, that they have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the doers of the work, because in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house, where the house had begun to be, you know, deteriorating and neglected because of the people's apostasy. And so he's paying for the work. The carpenters, the builders, the masons buy timber and hewn stones and repairing the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. He simply trusted the people who were laboring and those also who were having oversight. Now Hilkiah, the high priest, says to Shaphan, the scribe, a discovery has been made. Isn't that amazing? Right there in the house of God, they have found something. This is what they have discovered is a book. Wow, how a discovery needs to be made even in our churches in America today and as well as in our nation. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, many believe it was a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, perhaps not the entirety of the Torah, but just the last book of the Torah, which was the book of Deuteronomy. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. 
And Shaphan the scribe came to the king, and he brought the king word again, and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered into the hand of them that do the work. They have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has made this discovery, paraphrasing, he's delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And what a monumental moment and a holy and a sacred moment this was. For here's a young man who has recognized he does have a spiritual heritage. He's been exposed to the faith of David, but he's unaware of all the precepts and the laws that God has given the nation of Israel that were sacred laws. These were not man-made laws. These did not originate in the mind or the heart of a man. These laws had been confirmed by the power and the presence of God on Mount Sinai hundreds of years earlier. These were the laws of God. And when he hears this, as, he, as they read this book in his hearing, when the king hears these words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, of Akbor the son of Micaiah, the, and Shaphan the scribe and Isaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me. And so he goes to a prophet, it's actually a prophetess, to kind of hear if there is a word, a fresh relevant word connected to and in harmony with the scriptures. That's what we're always looking for. We want a prophetic word that's in harmony with the scriptures. Come on, somebody. And so uh, he goes and he inquires for great. He's discovered that great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that which is written according to are concerning us. Now we'll stop and just jump down there and we'll, for the sake of time. And he gets a word back from the Lord concerning the future of the nation that destruction was inevitable, but it would not happen in his day. And those words launched him into a reformation for his country as well. Perhaps not necessarily a revolution, but certainly a reformation. And the Bible says here we'll read three verses of Scripture in the 23rd chapter, and it'll set just a little bit of a context for us. The king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and notice what he did. He made a covenant before the Lord to walk, walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. It's a powerful passage of scripture. I'm going to ask real quick, Joe, if you would just take that down because that sounds terrible. It looks terrible that I'm sending my, handing my Bible off. This is not a James Jones moment just so that you will know, but this is just simply I need the fullness of the platform to shift papers here in just a few moments. Now, in the context for just a moment, as we read this, it doesn't demand much elaboration. It's clear to us here is a king that discovered his historical heritage. It awakened his faith. He wasn't satisfied. He wanted to repair the house of God so that he could worship and perhaps lead his countrymen into a greater worship of the God and the faith that he now possesses. And upon the repair of the temple, as we read, the discovery of this book is made. And when this, the, this law is read in his ear, he realized, is that this breach has occurred in his nation because of the apostasy of his people and therefore there is still yet time. I'm telling you, God is merciful. And I know that was in his heart that God is merciful. And if we can begin to launch into a reformation that, that we can truly see the hand of God upon our nation again, I'm certain is what was in his mind. And so a people once righteous and prosperous fallen into idolatrous practices and thus were needing a great and a new reformation. And I'd like to say this today to you. A discovery needs to be made in our nation. Perhaps a discovery of our original purpose and our original destiny as a country. Our heritage, our culture, our cause, and the faith of our forefathers. Now let me say this to you with all my heart. I believe that we need a new American revolution. A revolution that will be won in prayer. And by the power of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, rather than the swords of men and the smoke and fire of muskets and cannons. 
a revolution that you and I could be a part of that sparks it like the shot heard round the world. Perhaps again, a moment where God will echo a voice of anointing that agitates the faith of people and starts a revival in our country. Our president said, not recently, but a couple of years ago, and it was a specifically chosen location that he, he, he chose. It was a Muslim country that he chose to make this statement uh, when he was asked concerning uh, th that whether or not America was a Christian nation, in which he responded and said that we are not a Christian nation. And, and certainly I can understand to a measure of the context, which I, so I will say this, which is true in one sense which is true in one sense, and this is from my own words. All of our citizens are certainly not Christians. However, however, it is untrue in the context of our founding. Come on now. Can we go just a little bit further with that thought? And I don't believe that I carry these sentiments alone. I think there are others that carry these sentiments, such as Supreme Court Justice David Brewer, who lived between 1837 and 1910, because he responded to that very same statement. In what sense can America be called a Christian nation, he said. Not in the sense that Christianity is the established religion or that the people are in any manner compelled to support it. On the contrary, the Constitution specifically provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Neither is it Christian in the sense that all of its citizens are either in fact or named Christians. On the contrary, he says, all religions have free scope within our borders. Numbers of our people profess other religions and many reject all. Nor is it Christian in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding office or otherwise engaging in public service or essential to recognition either politically or socially. In fact, the government as a legal organization is independent of all religions. However, nevertheless, we constantly Constantly speak of this republic as a Christian nation. In fact, as the leading Christian nation of the world. Now even beyond that, if I might just borrow from a little bit stronger exhortation that's not from just one Supreme Court justice, but as a response to a case that was tried before the Supreme Court in 1892, the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. And here's the response of the, then the Supreme Court, much different than ours today. Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. Wouldn't that have been amazing to have? have heard that read two weeks ago when the announcement was made. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and in, to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. These and many other matters which might be noticed at a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. And so today... In the context of our founding, our original laws, our covenants, and our constitution, then we can ascribe and we can apply the words of the Supreme Court 1892 that this is a Christian nation. So let's take a moment if we can, if we can, for just a moment and recreate the debate of the decision of the Supreme Court that caused a measure of this controversy concerning deciding that it was unconstitutional, because I want to take you down a little road, I think, that will help you, if you'll bear with me. I've got a couple of things I think are very exciting. Some are more enlightening and exciting, but I think enlightenment it leads to some measure of excitement. Right? As you grow in your knowledge and your unawareness, or, and your uh, unawareness is, is, uh, is overwhelmed by the knowledge that you gain. So let's take for a moment and let's create. The question was whether it was unconstitutional for states to prohibit two citizens of the same sex the right to marry. That was the question because some of the states in our nation had voted by a populist vote that their state would define marriage as between one man and one woman, the natural order of marriage, correct? 
Now, so a suit was filed claiming that this violated the rights of citizens of those states described under the 14th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment was brought to us in 1865 during the, the, the end of slavery as the end of the... Uh, uh, the Civil War. And it, so this amendment is known as the Civil Rights Amendment. And here's what it states. It says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens, nor shall any state deprive any person, notice these three words, of life, liberty, or, or property without due process of law. Now, in response to that case, as you and I know, it was a five to four vote. Now, that's very, very, I don't want to say troubling, but it is very startling and challenging that nine people chosen to interpret the law can look at the same information and be so radically divided. That's very difficult in one sense, and it, pro it also poses a great challenge for the future of our country because we are so... Uh, it seems to be so divided in the way that we interpret certain things. So five cited that the states had violated the constitutional rights of its citizens by defining marriage as the natural union of one man and one woman. So now, oddly enough, unnatural unions, and they are unnatural, and I'm not throwing stones at homosexuals or gay people today in any capacity. If you are here for the first time, you'll have to go back and listen to the, the history of this pulpit as as it relates to addressing that issue. It's been non-threatening and non-accusational, but it's been spoken in with empathy and sympathy and also with love and for the hope and the purpose of redemption. Amen. Come on. And so, at this, but at the same time, we're, we're at the place where now we have, where our nation has elevated unnatural unions and recognized them at, in the state as equal to natural unions. But now, let me say this real quickly. We have to remind ourselves, just because the court affirms something does not mean that God does. We must remind ourselves of this. Now, here's my belief, and it's very simple, and I know that I lack the education to really even give a response, but I'll give mine based upon my personal convictions and the fact that you have given me this time to speak to you today. I believe that the five justices who were in favor of it or sided with the legality of gay marriage interpret the Constitution based upon a popular cultural acceptance rather than a historical principle and tradition. That's my personal belief. The reality is you and I may be free to do some things, but it doesn't mean it's right to do all things. All laws impose some measure of restraint upon your personal freedom. So for a moment today, I would like to take a brief history, if we can today, of our constitutions, not constitution because there were other constitutions prior to the constitution and covenants in American history. And if you'll walk with me for just a few moments, I think it will help you begin to understand the language that was used in that day because it was carried forward into the language of the Declaration of Independence and extended into the constitution. Now that constitution as you and I know it and that it holds our rights uh, today was drafted in 1787 and it was ratified in 1789 but it was not the original document that bound settlers, colonists or Americans. The very first document that bound the settlers that were settling the new country was in 1620 and it was aboard a ship and it was called the Mayflower Compact and it was the pilgrims themselves that before they would ever set foot on the new shore. They stopped and they drafted a compact, an agreement that they would put their hearts together and work for the common good of everybody and for the common good of the land. It began with these words, in the name of God, comma, amen, period. That's the beginning of the Constitution right there. In the name of God, amen. Having undertaken, listen, just an excerpt from there. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and for the honor of our king and country to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony. 
Now from there, as years passed, the second wave of immigration took place, this time not amongst the pilgrims, but another sect of Christianity out of the uh, old countries of England and Germany were the Puritans. Now the Puritans followed the pilgrims to the New World and they created Bible-based commonwealths and they adopted over 100 governmental covenants that, and compacts and they essentially laid the foundation for America's constitution. Now what was unique about the Puritans was that they believed in the written law. They believed in the written law based upon the revelation that God gave us his word first by oral but second by pen. By the finger of God he scripted upon a hardened stone and called it the Ten Commandments and they borrowed of that tradition and they captured the, the, the beginning stages of the laws that you and I know today. Matter of fact, if I can just exhort for just a moment, the first time a code of laws was written down in New England was in September or December of 1641 when the Puritans commissioned the services of Reverend Nathaniel Ward of Ipswich, a minister who had the, some legal training. Now, Reverend Ward created the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, which just like about everything else in Puritan New England was based upon the Bible. This Body of Liberties was premised on the belief that Christ's rule is not only given for the church, but also for the state. It contained principles found in the Bible. Specifically, listen to this. He searched the Word of God and he found 98 separate protections of individual rights. Individual rights, including no taxation without representation, due process of law, trial by jury of peers, prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment. Indeed, the Bible was central to the Puritan commonwealth, and the Puritan, the Puritan commonwealth helped set the framework of the laws and the liberties that we now enjoy to the United States of America. Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, let's go just a little bit further. So now, and I'm going to omit for the sake of time just a little bit. I could go a little bit further with the Puritans and their strong faith and belief in covenant. But I would like to go just a little bit forward here and, and take just a moment to address something. And that is, as we evolve further, now, oddly enough, because of such a belief the, that... Uh, that the state should be established on biblical principles and reflect the values of the Christian belief in the scriptures. Did you know that up until 1947, when the Supreme Court determined it was unconstitutional for state and local governments to choose to govern themselves according to the religious dictates of the citizen, up until that time, a state could actually have a state church Several of the states originally in the colony, now by 1947 they had already stopped the practice of it, but it was still legal that a state could come together. Not the nation, remember the Constitution is speaking for the federal government, but the state government could actually come together and say we're going to always respect the values and the religions of all people, however we're going to identify our state as Baptist or Methodist or Assembly of God. But in 1947, the Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional. But oddly enough, it carried on for over 200 years in our nation with people being aware. But let's go just a little bit further. Let's think about our Constitution because this is that reference. And I'm going to switch this in just a moment. But I've got to share, I've discovered a little truth that I think is going to help me reaffirm to you the thought that I dropped in your heart and mind just a few minutes ago concerning the fact that I believe that the error of the five judges was that they interpret the Constitution today not based upon a historical tradition but rather based upon a cultural acceptance. And so what I want to share with you is I want to look back for just a moment at our own Constitution because noticeably absent from the Constitution is any reference to God. The name of God is not mentioned in the Constitution. However, most historians and presumably all of the founding fathers believe that the Constitution was an extension of the Declaration of Independence. This may be seen even in the 14th Amendment with the words life, liberty, and property to which we mentioned even though that was added in 1865 because those words are almost the same as those words captured in the Declaration of Independence which is that we have the right to pursue life, 
liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. Now, in the Declaration of Independence, there are four references to God in the Declaration. One says that we have unalienable rights that are endowed upon us by our Creator. God himself is Elohim in the Hebrew. He's the Creator. He's given to all men life and breath. Whether or not men want to acknowledge that, and we live in an atheistic and an, uh, the byproduct of evolution having uh, polluted the minds of people for the last 100 and something years, it doesn't take away the legitimacy of that, fact that God is creator. He's creator God. Now, let's go just a little bit further. Secondly, and perhaps more impacting, are these words. Now, remember, Thomas Jefferson penned, along with the aid of five other founding fathers, the, 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 the Declaration of Independence. But much of the language that he used did not just uh, erupt out of his own heart. He borrowed language from that had been in the legal system and the legalities and the judiciary writings of many that were in front of him. And he copied these words, the laws of nature because our rights uh, he is speaking concerning these unalienable rights and must be in harmony with the laws of nature and of nature's God. So I want to take and I want to expound that moment to you for just a moment because this is paramount. I want my sons to listen with a listening ear and my daughter as well today because I want them to understand this today because this argument will be made again in their future and I want them to have some measure of power in response to this argument. Could it be that the words of the Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God because that's how that actually reads the laws of nature and of nature's God in between nature and of is the context, the laws of nature's God. Could it be that that's a reference to the scriptures? Could it be? In order to understand this, we have to look back at history. We have to search in the writings of the founding era. And we've discovered, or historians have discovered, that in the founding era, during a research that was taking place, 15,000 documents were reviewed. And they discovered that the most quoted and cited source during the founding era was the Bible. Outside source quoted, 34% of any outside uh, quotations was directly from the Word of God. Number two was a was a French. Um uh, uh, French lawyer that, that shared similar values. The third one was an English lawyer by the name of Sir William Blackstone. Eight percent of quotes come from Sir William Blackstone. He's a British jurist who wrote a popular commentary on British common law. He believed Christianity a part of the laws of the land and the basis for the Christian common law. Because most of the British common law was oral law, people would write books to expound upon the oral law. And so in the mid-1970s, or, or excuse me, in the mid-1700s, at the time of the Reformation and the Revolution, his book was the most influential book other than the Bible on the legal and the judicial system of America. And there's, he, in his book, he addresses this phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God. And it's very important for us to take a moment and see if we can dissect those words, if we can, for just a moment. I'm going to go back and read and going to share with you just a couple of excerpts. Now, even after this, as I want to state very, very carefully, it seems that we must, we must not let go of the Declaration of, in, of Independence as we seek to interpret the Constitution because they flow, one flows from the other, one gains its strength from the other. It's like trying to read the New Testament without the aid of the old. Come on, somebody. We don't even know what Messiah means unless we look back to the old. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so we have the declaration, and so the Supreme Court of 1887 and says it is always safe to read the letter of the Constitution in the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. And so in his book, and as he addresses this particular issue, I want to share with you just very quickly what Blackstone begins to expound, expound upon concerning of the nature of life 
laws in general. This is in this section of the commentary entitled of the nature of laws in general. So please listen. I know I'm taking a long time, but church family, our future hangs in the balance. If ever you could give me your attention, I'm going to ask for it today. If ever I might go a little bit longer than I normally would, it will be today. But I think when it's all said and done, you're going to find a great purpose behind this exhortation. He writes and says, law in its most general and comprehensive sense signifies a rule of action. It's applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational. Thus we say the laws of motion, the laws of gravitation or of optics or of mechanics, as well as the laws of nature and of nations. And it is that rule of action which is prescribed by some superior and which the inferior is bound to obey. He's simply saying that all laws are the result of a supreme being who's placed these laws in motion and it's the response of the subjects, the created individuals to respond to the actions and the laws of the creator. Thus, when the supreme being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he impressed certain principles upon that matter from which it can never depart and without which it would cease to be. And when he put that matter into motion, he established certain laws of motion to which all movable bodies must conform. He goes on to write, as he does so, to explain why man is obligated to follow the will and the law of his creator. Man is considered as a creature, most necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. Oh, y'all shot me down. For he is entirely a dependent being. A being independent of any other has no rule to pursue but such as he prescribes to himself. But a state of dependence will inevitably oblige the inferior to take on him the will of him of who he depends as the rule of his conduct. Not indeed in every particular, but in all these points wherein his dependency consists. And consequently, as man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will of this maker is called the laws of nature. And so when Thomas Jefferson is writing these words, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? The laws of nature, he's extracting these principles that Blackstone had expounded upon that the laws of nature had been placed there by the supreme being who also gave us a biblical law to understand that we must submit to the law of God. Come on now. Let's go just, for the sake of time, there was another passage of that particular book, but time will cause me to stop right there. So this is my, just as we consider for just a moment, it seems to me that the five justices that voted to allow an unnatural act to be affirmed and be made equitable or in equality with a natural union have therefore usurped the laws of the God of nature, to which our founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence ascribe that that's where we gain our inalienable rights. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? So church family, what we see in that moment was a usurping of cultural acceptance versus biblical and historical tradition and principle. That leaves us asking a lot of questions concerning our future. You say, Pastor Brown, then what can lead to a new American Reformation? What can lead to a new American Reformation? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to share that with you today. I believe that what can lead to a new American Reformation is a new great awakening, a spiritual mood, a spiritual response not just a political response. America is in moral decline. Therefore, our present governmental system is totally inadequate to provide our freedom. This was predicted by three of our founding fathers. Let me reference their words very quickly today. It was James Madison, who is known as the chief architect of the Constitution, who said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves and to control ourselves and to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. 
Let's go a little bit further. Echoed also by the second president of the United States. Well, actually let, me, John, actually, let me back up for just a moment. By John Witherspoon, who was a pastor in colonial America, but also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He writes, In free states where people have the supreme power in their own hands and must be consulted on all great matters, if there be a general corruption of morals, there can be nothing but confusion. Why is it so confusing in America today? Because we've had a general corruption of morals. So true is that civil liberty cannot long be preserved without virtue. Let's go one further. And lastly, it was the founding father, John Adams, our second president and the signer of the Declaration of Independence. And it is his words that smite my heart the most. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. He, in essence, is saying the human passions must be bridled by morality and religion because if it is not, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with those passions. Ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So church family, when we look around our nation today and we see all the strife and the division, the immorality and the sensuality, when we have a free sexual generation and we're bound by alcohol and drugs and our marriages are fragmented and the home is unsecure and hate and malice and violence is in our streets, uh, it's because that the morals deep within the heart have drifted far from where they could have originally been founded. And what we need in our country today is not necessarily this elected officer or that elected officer, but we need a God sent Holy Ghost inspired revival that turns the heart of men back to God and changes us at our lowest level that's in our heart of hearts. I want to allude very quickly today to some of the principles and and just very quickly, I don't know, I have my clock today, but you know what? I'm not going to hit the button and expose to me what time it is lest I get too out of context and not finish what I need to finish. This is too good to leave undone. This is too necessary to let it drift away to satisfy our own appetites rushing out of here, going to the restaurant. This is too important. The hour is too late for us to sit idly by any longer. We've seen a failure in our land, our constitution and our republic are not able to handle the immorality. The only thing that can make a change in the immorality and the morals of our country is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change the heart, the mind, and the soul of a man. They can take you from being an outcast and a sinner and bring you and make you a child of the Most High God. In Him I live, He said. In Him I shall arise. That first great awakening happened in the colonies prior to, and it helped prepare the people for the War of Independence. It happened between 1730 and 1770 because the people's morals had slipped into decay, even in the American colonies. And oddly enough, God just sent sovereignly. It didn't seem like anybody birthed it in prayer. It just seemed like God just sovereignly sent a revival. Two of those men were instrumental. I want to mention their ministries very, very briefly today. The first was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a British evangelist who uh, his unorthodox style of ministry often cast him out of the mainstream churches because he was demonstrative. He was a visual and he was a verbal. Thousands and thousands would come out into the wilderness to hear him. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was uh, often perhaps considered the least religious of all the founding fathers, was fascinated at this gifted evangelist. He uh, writes in his own words, in 1739 arrived among us from Ireland the Reverend Mr. Whitfield who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher. He was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches but the clergy taking a dislike to him soon refused him in their pulpits and he was obliged to preach in the fields. But the multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous and it was a matter of speculation to me who was one of the number to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding his common abuse of them by assuring them that they were naturally half beast and half devils. 
I don't know if he would be accepted in this soft contemporary church that we have today where you can't preach anything that offends or hurts anybody's feelings. He'd probably have to go to the hillsides and the fields again in our generation. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, wrote concerning George Whitfield, in some places thousands cried out aloud. Many as in the agonies of death. Most were drowned in tears. Some turned pale as death. Others were wringing their hands. Others were lying on the ground. Others were sinking into to the arms of their friends, almost all lifting up their eyes and calling out to God for mercy. I say it again to you today, what we need in America is a new great awakening, conviction and repentance from the White House to the Poor House, from Washington, D.C. to the Heber Springs, Arkansas. We need to see men and women rend their heart, not their garment, and turn back to God. Then, then we can change the direction of this land. The second, the second pastor it's one that we've noted in days gone by, perhaps even more famous than George Whitfield, is Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards was not a pastor with a flamboyant or dramatic style of ministry. He spoke in a monotone voice, and he read his sermons, not expounding them freely like I often do, or certainly as in comparison to George Whitfield. He is best known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he preached from the psalm that said, My foot almost slipped. And he preached concerning the fires of hell. And it was said by listeners concerning that message that as they stood or as they sat in the upper balconies of the church that day, that hell seemed so hot and the fervent fire of, of, of his words was so impenetrable upon their heart and their mind, penetrating their heart and mind, that they clung to the rafters lest they slip into the gates of hell themselves. But oddly enough, he preached primarily messages of love and, 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 and the grace of God. But let me tell you a little bit about a revival. I want you to hear real quickly a little bit of the pages because I was so moved as I read these words because a great awakening began to stir and he captured some of the events of it by his own pen. So if you would for just a moment, please allow me to elaborate. I'll have one concluding point and then we'll be finished here today. And the, Bible, or the, 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 the article says, the revival began in 1734 while Jonathan Edwards was preaching a series of sermons on justification by faith alone. Isn't that what we sang in the song earlier today? By him I'm justified. Come on somebody, maybe we'll get a God sent revival. Conversions began. First the young then the elders. A notorious woman, a young woman was saved. It was like a flash of lightning to the young people. Edwards himself described the events of the following year. Here's his own words. In the spring and summer following 1735 the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love or of joy, so full of distress, distress as if people crying out to God. Edwards continued to document this revival in a book he entitled, listen to this, May God Write a Book Concerning Heber Springs. May God Write a Book Concerning What Happens in America as a result of that one Supreme Court decision. A faithful narrative on the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundreds of souls in Northampton. Maybe God has an angel ready to pen words uh, that, concerning uh, the, the wonderful work of God in Heber Springs, Arkansas when many hundreds of souls came rushing and ushering into the kingdom of God. Jonathan Edwards writes by his own words, and then it was. How about that? And then it was. I remember Acts 2, it says, and suddenly, my God, God give us a suddenly. And then it was in the latter part of December that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to work among us. There were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were all, to all appearance, savingly converted, and some of them wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. Particularly, I was surprised with the relation of a young woman who had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. When she came to me, I had never heard that she had become in any way serious. But by the conversation I had with her, it appeared to me that what she gave an account of was a glorious work of God's infinite power and sovereign grace and that God had given her a new heart, truly broken and sanctified. 
God made it, I suppose, the greatest occasion of wakening to others, of anything that ever came to pass in the town. I've had many abundant opportunity to know the effect it had by my conversation with many. The news of it seemed to be almost like a flash of lightning upon the hearts of young people all over the town and upon many others. Presently upon this great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and all ages. The noise of dry bones wax louder and louder. Those that were wont to be the vainest and the loosest and those that had been the most disposed to think and speak slightly of vital and experimental religion were not generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more souls as it were come by the flocks to Jesus Christ. This work of God as it carried on in the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town. I believe it would not only be in a town, but it can be in a township. It can be in a county. It can be in a state. And it can be in a nation. Come on, somebody. It can. It can. So can be the work of God. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy and family on the count of salvation being brought into them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives, Jojo, as, as your prayer a moment ago, and wives over their husbands. The goings of God were seen in His sanctuary. God's day was delight and His tabernacles were beautiful. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly and tent on public worship, every here eager to drink the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. Oh, what a revival that would be. With listening ears, the people would sit and hear the word of God preached. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, and others with pity and concern for their neighbors. There were many instances that people came from ab abroad till at length the same work began to appear and prevail in several other towns in the country. He concludes in the month of March the people of South Hadley began to be seized with a deep concern as well as Northampton where he was riding from. About the same time it began to break forth in the west part of Suffield and next it came to Sunderland about the time it began to appear in Deerfield and Hadfield and West Springfield Longmeadow, Enfield, Westfield Northfield and every place God wrought his saving blessing with him and his word attended with spirit returned not unto him void. May it be that it begins in Hebrews Springs. May it spread to Little Rock. May it go from there to Mississippi and over to Kansas. From there may it go all the way to the White House. May it go from sea to signing sheet. May we see men and women turn their hearts back unto God. How we need a revival. And lastly, what I believe in conclusion today in helping continue a revival was the appearance, what helped continue that revival and what can help facilitate the second great awakening was the appearance of certain sect of men during the pre-American uh, pre, uh, Revolution days, pre and during the Revolution. They were known as the Black Regiment or the Black Robe Regiment. They were the preachers of their day who had the courage and the boldness to speak about political issues from their pulpit. So today, that's why I stand before you in my black suit today to stand in the backdrop of those famous pastors and leaders who had the courage to face the possible loss of their, of their congregation or the possible onslaught of the tyranny of Great Britain, but still use their voice as a way to sow the seed of faith and belief that God wanted to sever the nation of America from its dependency of, of Great Britain. These men were used in their pulpits to address the political issues of their day. Not always, but often as necessary, especially near election day. Reverend Jonathan Mayhew was an influential preacher of his day. And let me say this as I'm closing. He preached against the tyranny of Great Britain as a sin from which people under its oppression ought to rebel. He preached at a moment that said, this is not of God, this tyranny and this oppression. We have to rebel. He chose a passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 13, on January 30, 1750. But Reverend Mayhew did not instruct his flock to submit to a tyrant king. He believed there was a time and place to discuss politics from the pulpit. Here's his own words. It is hoped that but few will think the subject of it improper. 
one to be discussed, uh, discoursed on in the pulpit. In essence, he's saying there are those of you, perhaps just a few among us, that think that we should not address political issues from the pulpit. And that same thought still echoes in the minds of many today. I can frustrate and agitate people when I begin to preach a measure of what I believe biblical convictions to this audience. But it goes back to Reverend Mayhew who had the courage and he addressed this in his message. He, he said, however, to remove all prejudices of this sort, I beg it may be remembered that all scripture is given and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Listen, why then should not those parts of Scripture which relate to civil government be examined and explained from this desk as well as others? Thank God for men and women that are in these pulpits today that had the courage to speak up and to speak loud. Only then will we be able to sow the seeds of faith that will lead to a new great awakening. Listen, if we're dependent upon the contemporary church with its, in, uh, with its unwillingness to confront the moral issues and social issues of our day, then we'll be nothing more than a form of religion. We'll be nothing more than a sounding gong. But if we will have men and women emboldened by the power of the Holy Ghost to stand in this pulpit and lift up their voice and speak to the cultural issues, the political issues, and the social issues of our day, then God can give us a God-sent, Holy Ghost, Spirit-inspired revival that'll reach all the way from the church house to the White House. And I want to say to you today, I've come to join the ranks of those men by being a part of a new black robe regiment and say we're going to preach our conviction. Come hell or high water, come uh, uh, censorship by the government, it matters not. Our voice will be echoing through the corridors of our churches all around this nation saying repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. To God be the glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> Lastly today, I've said that twice, but I have to share one final exhortation here. I have to. Thank you just for one moment. This story, though, concerning these members of the Black Robe Regiment. In one of the most dramatic moments of the American War for Independence, it was in a Lutheran church. I don't know if that would happen today. In a Lutheran church in Virginia, the pastor, Reverend John Peter Mullenberg, preached from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 8. To everything there is a season. Some of you are thinking, when will this season end? To everything there is a season and to a time to every purpose under the heaven. He's reading this. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. As Reverend Moldenberg concluded his sermon, he said, in the language of holy writ, there is a time for all things. A time to preach and a time to pray. But those times have passed away. There is a time to fight and that time has now come. He then tore off his clergy robe in front of the startled congregation. Under his robe, Reverend Mullenberg was dressed in the uniform of a continental army officer. He declared his intentions to leave the ministry for the duration of the war in order to serve in the cause of American liberty. George Bancroft tells us the congregation of Germans quickened by the preaching of Moldenberg were eager to take up arms. This dramatic moment in American history is commemorated by a statue of Moldenberg that still stands in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. William J. Fetter tells us what happened next. That afternoon at the head of 300 men, he marched up. That very afternoon, that very same day, he led 300 men from his congregation and he marched off to join General Washington troop becoming colonel of the 8th Virginia Regiment and he served until the end of the war be promoted to the rank of a major general. My God today. Come on church family. We need pastors, don't we Dr. Brassfield, that have the moral fortitude and the strength of courage to be strong in a day of apostasy and apathy. We don't want to beat up our churches, but we want to challenge you every time you walk through those doors. We want to sharpen you to be the sharp sword that God's designed you to be, to be salt and light, to go out among them as, come on, lambs among wolves, but trusting in our Savior and our shepherd to preserve us and to keep us, to not give up. Let us not give up on this nation called America. God entrusted it into the hands of Christians in the beginning. May we reclaim what was rightfully ours by faith and perseverance.
What I do today as I close, I commit as your pastor to be a part of a new black robe regiment. And I, continue, and I will continue to occasionally, not all the time, not every time you come into this house, but occasionally use this pulpit to address the political issues of our day. Number two, I ask you to pray with fervent faith for a new spiritual revelation in America. A new spiritual, spiritual revelation followed by a revolution. Uh, by fervent faith birthed in prayer. Number three, we must somehow unite the church of America in political identity. Somehow, some way, the church is going to have to stop being so fragmented and divided and come together because I want you to hear this. If the church would come together, we would control every election in every city, in every state across this nation. If we could just somehow lay aside our differences and unite our voices in a common voice, the voice of God would echo through the voice of the people of God and we would see this nation return back to its biblical precedence to which our founding fathers gave us to God be the glory. Y'all stand up. Shane's going to come on the, play, on the stage with me and we're going to sing one song in closing a cappella. I challenge you, occupy till he come, church family. Don't give up. Educate yourself on your history. Amen. Don't wait on the public schools to do it. Nope. Come on now. Educate your children on your American Christian heritage and educate yourself as concerning your rights as a Christian citizen.